actions antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Have you ever had a job where you felt less than human? You felt like nothing more than a cog in a machine and kind of had trouble finding your purpose or why you're really there? My guest today, Tracy Chernoff, is an HR executive really involved in a lot of initiatives around the future of work, as well as the host of the podcast, Putting the Human Back in Human Resources. Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. And so the first thing I want to ask you, given that I suspect that a lot of my listeners have had this experience, or maybe even currently having this experience of their place of employment, and we're living in a time when a lot of people are reconsidering you know, whether you call it the great resignation, the great reshuffle, whatever you want to call it, their relationship with their work, what does the phrase putting the human back in human resources mean to you? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, to me, what's so interesting about this is that the human was already in human resources. It's the reason why it's the title of the department or the phrase that we use when it comes to this industry. So when it comes to really why I always talk about bringing the human back. It's that we kind of lost our way. I think for me, the way that I grew up, so to speak, grew up in HR is that it was clear that there were some really, really strong foundations in the industry and in the practice. My takeaway was that there wasn't really enough of a focus on the people behind the problems or the people behind the solutions. And so one of the reasons why I started the podcast, Bring the Human Back to Human Resources, was because I wanted to make a call to action that we had to take a look at the way that we were operating and the way that we were addressing these problems and solve for them through a people-centric approach. So I always say that people are at the center of everything that we do. And it's the reason why businesses are businesses today. There's not one business that I'm aware of, at least, that can operate without a human being. And mm-hmm. so that's that's really <laughs> what it means to me. Oh, man, I'm picturing some kind of weird dystopian future movie with a robot business and everything. And there's still going to have to be someone to help that robot. You know, there's still going to be someone (laughs) fixing the robot. There's not going to be a robot fixing a robot because then who's going to fix that robot? Yeah, exactly. I think there was a movie when I was younger, Will Smith was in it. It took place in the year 2030. I robot that was about robots building robots. And yeah, but look, you couldn't have the movie without Will Smith. See? Yeah, or the writers or any of the other people. (laughs) So let's start out with a little context about the history of human resources, because you talk about the human always being there, but then human resources losing its way at some point. How did that whole process for people who don't quite know what happened in the 20th century play out? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, first of all, my understanding of HR is very modern because I started my career when it wasn't called personnel. The HR department, so to speak, in a business was first the personnel department or maybe the payroll department, the benefits department. And then as businesses shifted and people required more, there were more demands, especially in the United States, laws became more litigious. And actually just in general, the legal compliance around having a business that requires people to work in it and work for it. There are so many legal considerations there. So I think from my perspective, that's when things started to shift from personnel into HR. And there was this 
centralizing of the people side of the business. So payroll and benefits didn't just sit with a payroll department. Now it's sitting with human resources because human resources is a centralizing of the resources for the human beings in the business. And all of these stigmas around HR, like HR is not super helpful. HR only cares about the nine to five and doing what they have to do day in and day out. That perspective of that like plug in place and not really considering the human being that they're helping, it comes from somewhere. It comes from that transition from my perspective, because when you go from a functional department to a people facing department, it's a very specific shift that requires a lot of change management. And the organizations that, in my opinion, did a really good job job shifting gears are now people operations. For example, they're really looking at how HR, human resources is exactly that. It's a resource for the people in the business. But then to add on to that, HR has now taken on even more of a strategic role, which is really where I've typically played a role in the organizations that I've worked for. And so HR uh, business partners, for example, directors, those titles that I've held, those are people in HR positions who are actually perfectly positioned. I don't want to say wedged, but perfectly positioned between the business and the people in terms of protecting their interests, which is where some of these stigmas around HR being like two-faced or only telling Telling you what you want to hear to your face. Those stigmas come from this feeling that we are protecting the business and we're also protecting the people. And how can we do both? But the thing is that you can do both because the business interests should be the interests of the people. And so that's really, to me, what that shift has called for. And now we're in the middle of another shift where, you know, to your point, the great resignation and great realignment, all of those things. So now HR people are in a position of needing to be even more strategic, super agile, experts in compliance. I mean, now we've added DE&I and CSR and different initiatives that have taken what existed in HR in a very small fraction of the day-to-day. And in my experience, I've even had people who have owned those things outside of HR. But now HR has become this huge conglomerate and huge part of the day-to-day for a business and actually something that I think all of us HR professionals have been trying to move to, which is that you can't run a business without HR. The importance of the people that run your company is something that it seems like even before COVID was starting to get a little bit more attention over the course of the 2010s. But for a little while, particularly, I feel like in the 90s and the 2000s, it wasn't really getting that much attention at all. So you're saying that the reason why it got to be where it was at the turn of the century was that these personnel and payroll departments kind of merged together and became these bigger conglomerate type departments. And it became more about, and I think the stereotypes that I've heard is that I've heard a lot of people say, at least back 10, 12 years ago, HR is not for you. HR is for the company. HR yeah. is for the company to cover their ass and yeah. for HR their is only responsible for hiring and firing. That's also a super common stereotype. I mean, even my grandma still has no idea what I do. And this, I talked about this on the very first episode of my podcast because it's like, so, wow. sometimes it's really hard to explain what I do. But it's like, no, grandma, there's so much more to my job than hiring and firing people. And I think The biggest takeaway for me, even in experiencing and working through COVID, is that 
major life moments around the world change the way that businesses operate. So COVID changed everything about the workplace and work and the future of work, right? We know this to be true. And so I can only think about in the early 2000s with 9-11 and I mean, even some of the wars that we were involved with, those things play a huge role on the way businesses operate even on a on a smaller scale like i've always been in retail but i can imagine that at that time because i i wasn't working in hr in the early 2000s i was still basically growing up but I remember the shift, for example, when 9-11 happened. I vividly remember the change in society and that people were really trying to band together more closely. So I can only presume that businesses did change the way they operated because they had to care for people differently. They had to provide different benefits. I don't know when EAP started. This is probably something that I have to look into. EAP is Employee Assistance Program. And many, many, (laughs) many businesses have EAPs. And I can only imagine that employee assistance programs were elevated. Maybe they existed before the 2000s, but I can only imagine that they were elevated from these points of really traumatic and life-altering moments in the world. It's interesting because I had a previous podcast guest discuss having gone into corporate boardrooms in the 1990s. This was an older gentleman that had been at it for a little bit longer. And when he discussed trying to make employees happy, satisfied, fulfilled, whatever your favorite term it is for a positive employee experience, being laughed out of boardrooms in the 1990s. But it sounds like you're saying that the 9-11 was the first in a series of events that has been gradually moving us more in the direction of having to have what you describe as the human component to human resources. Yeah, because, and I've been thinking about this a lot because for me as a, technically I'm a millennial, although I don't know that I necessarily feel that way, but I, you know, I was born in the nineties and I vividly remember the difference between pre 9-11 life and post 9-11 life. And also being from New Jersey. I mean, there were so many things that impacted me differently. Yeah. That, and my family and their work and all of these things that were so closely connected to that moment. But as an adult living through COVID, I started to think about, wow, these changes in the way that people demand and expect more from their employers our lives are way more than just work. Those life moments result in people saying, gosh, what am I doing with my life? What really matters? And people were either super happy with what they were doing at work or were like, wow, I do not enjoy what I'm doing and I must leave. And that is what we're seeing with the great resignation. So to me, all of it is related. I think society and what's going on in the world has a huge impact on who we are at work and the way that businesses respond. I mean, we're even seeing that now with Ukraine and everything that's going on there. So I think it's all totally, totally related. And I'm not an expert. These are just my yeah, you no, know, I mean, late night thoughts. <laughs> oh, no, it's great to have all those perspectives on it because I have actually heard other people say the same thing about the great resignation, reshuffle, whatever it is, that during COVID, there was a period where it was at least a short period for a lot of people's lives where people were worried about the end of their lives. They were worried about whether this sickness was going to engulf us all and said to myself or said to themselves, okay, if this is really the end, like, why did I spend so much time at the office? Why did I, why did I put in those long hours? People who are on their deathbed rarely express the regret 
that I wish I had worked longer hours. And you know what I mean? But for a while, it seems like in our work culture, at least in the second half of the 20th century, long hours was seen as some sort of a virtue in work. Yeah, this is exactly it. And when I think about to all of your points, because they are so right, why people have decided to leave their jobs and try something else. It's really because this is exactly it. We are human beings and we can't separate who we are in real life and who we are at work. And that, and that is right. It's like in real life, but it's like, you're still you, you might put on a different face or use a different voice at work, but really you're you. And so, you know, I think about my colleagues who were really very, very, very focused on working for organizations that have had extremely built out DE&I initiatives and all of that. And that that was a huge life altering moment for them because whether they're people of color or people directly impacted by companies that aren't saying something in terms of like what their DE&I initiatives are and really standing behind what they say they're going to do. That's one example of how people don't want to be different inside of work and outside of work. And that there's this expectation that businesses and employers are not only responding appropriately, but also that they're like physically and emotionally supporting their employees. And so this is where psychological safety really comes into. And honestly, this is why HR had the highest growth in the sense of the most openings last year in 2021. Oh, wow. I did not for see hiring. that. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to find the statistic for you. This is a reputable source. And all of this to me is because the balance of power has shifted. Businesses are no longer in the driver's seat. It's the employee in the driver's seat, the candidate in the driver's seat saying, I expect you to be have well-developed DE&I initiatives, well-developed social responsibility approaches. People want to work for companies that they feel they are represented by. And so this was my point on psychological safety that people, and even I can think about a time for myself where I felt like I didn't necessarily have psychological safety. And that really means that, you know, yeah. And that basically for anyone who doesn't know what psychological safety is, it really in summation is being in an environment, in a place of work or really anywhere where you feel comfortable enough to share thoughts, perspectives, concerns, fears openly in a safe place and that you're not going to be chastised for the things that you bring up because psychological safety doesn't mean that you're always going to be agreed with or that you're always going to get what you want, but rather it's that you don't have this fear of an adverse reaction. And I always say on my podcast that life is not without adversity. There are always going to be people against you. There are always going to be opinions that don't align with yours. There are always going to be people that you work with that you don't get along with. And that's okay. You have to have adversity in life, but it's about psychological safety to me is about being able to have the conversation. So if you don't respect someone, you don't have psychological safety, but if there's mutual respect, you can have conversations that are sometimes super polarizing or upsetting, but at the end of the day, you respect one another and you can have that conversation in a mature and open way. That's interesting because I've been reading quite a bit about psychological safety and its relation to innovation, something that as the world and technology moves faster and faster, changes faster and faster, in order to survive, a company needs to foster that 
environment of creativity and innovation. And if people don't feel psychologically safe, they won't bring up their idea. They won't even say like, I have this idea and you won't be tapping into the old fashioned idea of an organization where all the innovation and all the ideas and all the commands come from the top or come from the center, however you want to describe those particular diagrams. I feel like there are, you know, as you kind of alluded to, there are some misconceptions around psychological safety because psychological safety does not mean that you're not going to hear something that upsets you even. You have to be ready to hear that. So what do you think a person who's listening now can do individually in wherever they're going in life, whether it be in their organizations and their work, or even their social circles, their families and everything like that to foster an environment of psychological safety so that more people can just be out and open with whoever they are or whatever ideas they have that potentially make things better. This is such a good question. My first instinct is to say that this might sound counterintuitive, but to encourage critical thinking, because actually I think, especially with social media, there's an absence of that. I think that people are looking and people is such a general term, but I can even say for myself, we consume content in swipes. We look at things, we formulate opinions after a five second video or 30 second video. And that actually, to me, prevents the not only critical thinking, but it also prevents us from having conversations with one another because we've always already formulated an opinion on something we might not even have any context or information or experience on. And so I think the first thing is to really encourage critical thinking. And that honestly is part of like the values of a company. Like if employees are encouraged to think critically about what they're doing, then they're probably going to naturally think critically about things that they're talking about. Because that is to me something that prevents psychological safety when people just say things to say them rather than really thinking about their audience, really thinking about how what they're going to say could impact someone else. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I would say it probably is more simple than we make it out to be, but that's to just allow the conversation. I think a lot of organizations are afraid of having this open format, open dialogue, because they don't know what they're going to get. They don't know if the person who's really disgruntled is going to poison the well. But the reality is is that (laughs) that person's disgruntled. They're going to poison the well regardless. But like, if you allow the opportunity for people to have an open and candid dialogue with one another, actually, those people who are really engaged become more engaged the people who maybe are on the precipice of being engaged or being disengaged, they might become more engaged because it's like you walk away thinking, wow, my employer is trusts us enough to have a mature and respectful conversation. Not every conversation is going to be happy. It's not going to be agreeable and that's okay. And I think my perspective has always been if you can at least open the floor for people to share their thoughts and opinions, then yes, it might be scary. Actually, it will be scary. I remember like sweating profusely when I opened up the floor for different conversations that I had no idea what to expect the conversation to be. But the reality is you walk away getting that feeling of, wow, I think I did something really good. I think those people who decided to speak up feel really good. And it's not easy to actually speak up. I have been the person to, like I said, not only open the floor, but I've also been the person 
in various companies to speak about something that was deeply personal to me, but really hard to talk about because it's vulnerable. You, you have to be vulnerable and you have to be open to people not agreeing with you. But that feeling of knowing, okay, well, I just spoke about it. I didn't get fired. People don't hate me. I didn't have any negative repercussions. That is so such a wonderful feeling to talk about something that's really maybe weighing heavily on you or really impactful on your experience as an individual. To be able to just talk about it makes it feel less of a burden or like less of a burden, you know? And and when I think about my colleagues, my friends who are people of color and have talked about their experience as Americans, for example, and the different takeaways that they've had having the ability to talk about it has allowed them to feel like they're a little bit more understood. Like maybe it's not their responsibility to teach anyone, but that feeling of being understood and being heard is really, really valuable to people. Organizations can often have a problem, but since no one feels comfortable speaking up about it, it goes unspoken, undiscussed, and then all of a sudden the ship's going down and you have no idea why. All of a sudden the, the ship's going down because no one felt comfortable feeling that way. 2020 was the year that there was the most upheaval. COVID came, there was the George Floyd and all the protests. And one of the things when I thought through that whole year was the idea that maybe if there's like a larger spiritual even message behind it, it is that we need to stop avoiding these uncomfortable conversations. We need to start being ready to hear stuff that we don't like hearing, but also be ready, be open to say, okay, this person had a different experience. How people exercise this brain muscle of avoiding instantly reacting or instantly taking offense to something that they might not like hearing. Because I feel like with some of these discussions around whether it be DEI or anything else, there could be some things on both ends that people don't like hearing, but on either side or just often more than two sides. So I don't want to simplify it, but on any side of the issue, there's going to be different experiences and people expressing things in ways that don't sound natural to people who've had different experiences. Yeah, it's true. Exposing problems. This is so true for even operational things. When employees feel comfortable saying, Hey, so and so leader, you know, I think we could be doing this way more efficiently. If they can't say that, the business is not going to progress or it's just <laughs> yeah. going to take a really long time. And it's true that whether it's something super small and detailed or something super big like DEI and corporate social responsibility, people need to be able to express those challenging or disagreeable perspectives. And I say disagreeable, meaning to go against the grain of what was the standard at that time. Because anything that's the standard is, let's say the standard is set at X and someone is saying, okay, well, I think we need to do things differently. If people feel comfortable challenging the status quo, that you've already established quite a bit of psychological safety there. Yeah. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. And I mean, that is critical thinking. Challenging the status quo is innately that psychological safety can feel like a bit of a double-edged sword because I think there's this feeling of, okay, well, we're going to talk about things that are uncomfortable, but those moments and feeling like, okay, well, I'm talking about something that's important to me, but I might offend someone that disagrees with me. That can work against the psychological safety that's been established. And so it can feel like, well, I feel comfortable talking about it, but 
I also don't feel comfortable talking about it because I don't want to offend someone else. Or someone talks about something that's really important to them and they're not thinking about the other person. And there's another person who is offended. And this is not a comment on DEI. This is just generally speaking that having differences in opinion can feel uncomfortable. But that's to me, when you're uncomfortable, that's growth. I was an athlete and growing up and it's in those moments of feeling challenged where your muscles are sore and you're huffing and puffing. That's where you find growth. And I think that there is so much opportunity in creating that openness. And I also think what comes to mind with this realizing that not everyone's going to agree with you and that's okay. It comes to mind for me with social media because I have such a love-hate relationship with social media. I, <laughs> so like, does every millennial. <laughs> every millennial. This is why I feel like I was totally born like 10 years too late. It's like, oh, you know, maybe I could have I had a little bit more time without social media because I loved... I don't know. Maybe I'm just too nostalgic on the, the dial-up days, you know, where not everything was at your fingertips. Oh, yeah. But, and you had to go on the right, AOL and wait yeah, for that. Yeah. And I had to tell my parents thing. to get yeah. off the phone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's like, get her off the phone. I need some internet. <laughs> um, yeah. And it wasn't called Wi-Fi. I think it was, we called it like the internet. Like I it, needed... It yeah, it was just AOL or Prodigy yeah. or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway, that's a story for another time. I think with social media, we are consuming so many opinions. And I know for me, the hate part of the love-hate relationship is that I feel totally overwhelmed by all of the opinions that are aligned with mine and the opinions that are not aligned with mine. And I think that heaviness that we all experienced or probably most of us experienced in 2020 between the pandemic and everything from a DNI perspective too it was heavy i mean it was a lot to take in it was a lot to deal with and on top of that you are consuming this content outside of work too there's no break from the discussion that really is super super important and really impactful and I just think about this concept of, I think it's the Dunbar number where it's humans are designed not to have oh, or 150 people. Yes. Yeah. Humans are designed to have up to 150 close relationships, but social media really challenges this concept because even though you might not know someone who's the influencer that stands for all the things that you believe in, and then they express something that goes against who you are and what you believe. And it's like, oh my gosh. My world is coming to an end, you know, and that like intensity in our relationships inside of work, outside of work, it can really have an impact on businesses because gone are the days where you check your quote unquote baggage. This concept of like all consuming content, it's pervasive in your every second of every day. And I think it's probably like fairly unhealthy for psychological safety businesses are much more connected because of social media. They're much more under a microscope, so to speak, because employees, people are expecting a certain standard, a certain level of involvement in different things that they didn't necessarily have the responsibility of before. I personally have to admit that I sometimes long for a world without social media because I think it's been a big experiment in the human condition that we're still trying to figure out how to operate with. We have seen the depression, violence, and suicide and drug abuse rates skyrocket because of certain things about it. 
I have this really weird theory that one of the driving forces behind this renewed explosion in interest in meditation is exactly that. Like what you're saying, the mind needing time that it's not ingesting more data, ingesting more data. You need to actually consume data, but then you need to actually think it through and decide what you're thinking, which is where this critical thinking comes from, because it's the same thing. Just because someone says something on Twitter or just because you watch a YouTube video doesn't mean you have to agree with what they're saying. You investigate yourself. You let it chew through your logic, your reasoning practices and figure out, okay, do I agree with this? What does this mean to me? Yeah, no, exactly. I sit in the sauna after the gym in the mornings and I keep my phone in the locker and I just sit there and I breathe. I try to turn off my thoughts and my mind because it's just so insane and intense. You know, it's like your mind is constantly, constantly going. At least maybe it's maybe it's just me. I don't know. If I have a problem, let me know. But I need that time where I'm not consuming something. And I think we take for granted those moments of quiet. Those quiet moments are really worth a lot. And so I think about social media, how we, I mean, even at work, how many people are not scrolling on Instagram or looking at TikTok in between meetings? I mean, we all do it, right? So sometimes during meetings, even. Sometimes during meetings, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I can only imagine that our brains are not wired to take in all of that information. And then when you add, like for me, most of my newsfeed are like dogs and really happy stories because that's just what I love to interact with. But then you get something really heavy and really sad or really intense. And it really messes with you because it disrupts your day. I think most of the time before consuming social media 24-7, you have an opportunity to reflect and to process. There is no processing in social media. It's instant processing. And this is where the critical thinking comes in for me is that we don't have to critical think anymore because we're just being given information in 15-second reels. And that's that. And I think that has a huge impact on how people perform and come to work. One of the things I wanted to make sure I talked to you about is that you have a lot of engagements that are around the future of work and employee engagement. And I think I've talked about this in previous podcasts. A lot of people have seen the surveys that show roughly a third of our workforce here in the U.S. are actually engaged. What do you see as being the key to all these changes, everything we're seeing, making it happen in a way that will improve employee engagement going forward and make more people happy and productive at their jobs? In general, obviously, you're going to have those bad days. You got in yeah. a fight with your spouse. You got in a bad fight with your dog, and you're just not yourself today. But you know, <laughs> in general, happy and engaged on most days. Oh well, this is the problem everyone's trying to solve. I think <laughs> the first thing is to realize that engagement is way more than just paying benefits. I think for a long time, companies and HR professionals thought that engagement was only related to pay and benefits. We saw that at the beginning of the Great Resignation. Everyone's like, "Okay, we're going to increase pay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to yeah. increase pay, and everything's going to be fine." And what happened? They increased pay. And people still left their jobs. They still were unhappy. It's not about pay. It's everything. It's pay. It's benefits. It's coworkers. It's the flexibility in work. It's predictability in work. It's time off. It's who we are outside of work. It's the work that we're doing. It's the company we work for. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And so much of that is 
a problem that will probably always exist. Not every business is going to have the budget that employees expect or want them to have. So they might not always be the most competitive from salary. For me, if you're not competitive in salary, you have to have everything else right because you have <laughs> yeah. to make everything mm-hmm. else so amazing. All of the benefits, all of the experiences, everything, the flexibility, everything else has to be right if, because pay is a huge part of engagement, but it's not everything. The other thing too is that human beings want flexibility. They want to have self-determination. And I can only speak from my own experience. I was a great student growing up, but I knew what I wanted and what I needed. And if a teacher told me that I had to read a book a certain way, but that wasn't the right way for me, (laughs) I would say, no, I'm going to read it the way I want to read it. And like, I had great relationships with my teachers, but I also really challenged the status quo and it's totally the way that I am today. And I'm using that example because I think about remote work. People don't want to be told where and when they're going to do their best work. They want to be trusted to do their best work when it makes sense for them. And not every industry has this privilege, right? Like I worked at Target and I wouldn't yeah. have been able to work remotely you and need do the shifts job. At Target. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to me, and this is why I'm at the company that I'm at today, Legion Technologies, we're an AI powered workforce management company. Our mission is to turn hourly jobs into good jobs. And all of this comes down to hourly employees making up 58% of the United States workforce. So it's a, the majority of Americans are working on an hourly basis, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a fact that most people probably do not know. I think most people probably think that the majority of Americans are salaried earners, but they're not. Especially salaried workers probably, but yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the whole premise of driving this mission is that people, whether they're hourly salary earning $10 an hour or $100 an hour, they want flexibility and they want the predictability in their lives. They want to be able to say, okay, well, I have a baby shower on Friday and I don't want to work that shift. And so it's a matter of trusting our employees to own their schedules and own how they perform and do the work. So obviously that's a super specific example of a retail employee, but you know, I even think about my own role. I work fully remotely. I honestly have never been more engaged in the work that I'm doing because I feel like I can start my day at 7 in order to get the work done before the West Coast team is up and at them. Or I could start my day at 9.30 because I have a meeting that's running later because it's on Pacific time. So I think that that is also a huge part of engagement is the self-determination. And then finally, one of the other major pillars for me is the recognition that people, human beings are way more than the work that they do and creating that environment for them to get involved beyond their work, have the opportunity to take time off. And it's not just about the opportunity, but to really unplug when they're on that paid time off. Because I know that I've had PTO that I've worked through in the past, and that is the worst PTO. I'd rather not take PTO. Is there a place in the system that you're noticing that prevents a lot of organizations from, say, having enough employees where people can work a normal amount of hours and people can take off and really be disconnected because there's someone else handling it? But it seems like there's a lot of organizations where there's just a lot of pressure and there's just too much pressure to give them that work-life balance or work-life integration, however you want to describe it. It's a really good question. Good point. I think. It depends on the industry. For me, if 
let's say it's a sales industry or even in my own company where we're really very customer facing because we're providing software as a system, there has to be at some level also a setting of expectations for the customer. Thank you to uh, Jeff Bezos, because this is why we are a 24-7 operation (laughs) in terms of like a population, not my company, but 24-7 human beings, because we now expect packages to be delivered within either that day or within two days. I don't know how Amazon even does it, to be honest, because it's almost humanly impossible. But my point here is that when you don't set the expectation, like, and there's this assumption that every business can operate at lightning speed like that, then there's going to be a pressure on the employees that make it happen. Similarly, in retail, like I think about Costco, actually, Costco is a really good example. They were the first that I am aware of, the first company, huge companies at least, that said, we're not opening on Black Friday or on Thanksgiving, I should say. Oh yeah. When Black Friday started creeping back into Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's like Black Friday starts at 2 p.m. on Thanksgiving. It's like, what? And Costco was like, no, we're not opening on Thanksgiving. And I remember when I was working at Target at the time. So this is the, like, let's say 2014 through 2017, I was at Target. At that time, the Target employees were like, we need that. I don't want to work on Thanksgiving either. And then some of the customers were like, why are you open on Thanksgiving? But what happened? And customers always take time to adapt. People take time to adapt. They're going to be early adopters, but most people are not early adopters. So eventually the consumer was like, oh, that is a great idea, Costco. That's so fabulous that you're giving your employees off to spend time with their families like me. And so that like setting of expectations, I think, does relieve the pressure on the business. Unless you say, whoa, pause. We can't actually physically do that. But don't worry, we're still going to apply the same level of quality to this solution that we're providing you. You're always going to have that increase in pressure. And when it comes to manager and employee relations, that is also a huge part of it. It's like setting the expectation and setting the standard. And you know, I think about even... Do you remember credit cards before they were the chip and you had to swipe? Yeah. Yeah. And it would always take a little, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you have to swipe it a few times. Well, I remember I was working at Target at the time that Target stopped accepting the swipe and they were only accepting the chip. Oh, wow. Oh my okay. gosh. Yeah. I remember this vividly because... People either loved it or they hated it. And when they hated it, they hated you. And it's really hard to be in a people-facing role. And when I was at Target, I was in store as an HR generalist, basically. And there was a huge change management concept there that we had to teach and train the customer to adapt to this new technology. And this is, to me, what relieves pressure from businesses is like, again, setting the expectation, but also going through it, expecting that there's going to be a labor of love there and time to get to the ideal solution. So if businesses today have an issue or a challenge in giving their employees the space to take time off, that means that today they have to figure out how they're going to work toward that solution and when they expect to hit that solution. It's not going to be an overnight thing where all of a sudden, all of your employees are able to turn off their phone and take time off. But maybe in six months, when they've executed the strategy of hiring two consultants who work 
a certain hours or certain days or to help with certain things, then, okay, in six months, you can see the solution panning out that your full-time employees are now unplugging and more engaged because they're able to take that time. So I know I, I shared a couple of very specific examples there, but that's how it makes sense to me. Those are really good examples. And it always reminds me of a company near and dear to me as a Colorado outdoorsy person is REI, who doesn't even open on Black Friday. They urge people to do the hashtag opt outside and show, of course, it's the shittiest time of year. So I rarely have like a really good activity that ski slopes might have three runs open by then. And the, everything else is still already kind of muddy and snow packed. So it's not like this great time to go out, but it is fantastic. And one of the things I feel like connects these ideas of whether it's on the customer or the workforce is this idea of the culture of immediacy, the expectation that your question is going to be answered immediately, your package is going to be delivered delivered pretty much immediately. The biggest part of the great resignation has been people working at places like Target, people working these, these shift jobs that are getting paid quite crappy for a long time and understand that you know, the server at the restaurant, the person at Target, they're all human beings. They're not just this amorphous whatever blob of animal parts that manic magically brings everything together for you. And therefore, sometimes things are going to take time and sometimes there's going to be some variance in how quickly you get your soda refill at the restaurant. And so as a result, once we get rid of that culture of immediacy, it sounds like then we'll all be able to kind of live lives with more balance and more flexibility. We need to be better consumers. When we go into a retail store or we go into a restaurant and we get frustrated because the host or the sales associate is not giving us the level of urgency or doesn't have the sense of urgency that we're expecting because we've created this crazy expectation that everything happens immediately and to our standard every time. I mean, we're going to set ourselves up for failure every time we're going to be disappointed. And that pressure put on the hospitality industry, the pressure put on the retail industry, it makes those jobs less desirable. So then we created this. We created this sense of misery when it comes to like what sales associates in a retail store have to experience. We as consumers expect retail sales associates, hospitality workers to always be their best selves, to have a smile on every second of the day, to leave their baggage at the door and to be these perfect robotic human beings that give us exactly what we want every single time. And then when we don't get that, we say, we're not shopping there anymore. We're horrible human beings. Two stars on Yelp or whatever Two it is. Two stars on Yelp. We go to try and shut down the small business that doesn't give us free shipping that we want. I mean, it's like literally cancel culture every time you walk into this type of environment with these types of expectations. For me, because I've worked in retail my entire life with the exception of my current position, I really like think about that so actively as a consumer. If we want to be happier employees and we want to have more engagement and we want we want more from our workday, we have to treat people who are working their jobs and servicing us, we have to treat them better because they'll be happier and they'll enjoy their jobs a lot more. Yeah. So it sounds like to have a better experience at our own workplaces, wherever we're working, we need to all kind of think about how to be better customers. This is a huge perspective for me in the HR space is that I always say this, HR professionals are customer service representatives. We are here to service the business. We're here to service the people. 
we can't have our own perspectives in the sense that our opinion comes first. We challenge opinions. We challenge status quo, the status quo. We challenge strategy. We come up with strategy, but they can't be for our own benefit. It has to benefit the business, the employees. Exactly. There has to be some, we're doing like sometimes thankless work and it's thankless because it's not fulfilling your own agenda. It's to support the people or the business or both. If you are not making the customer happy, the business happy or the people, and to me, the business and the people are one and the same, then you are not effectively servicing the customer. And I've always lived this way in my HR career because I really believed that, especially in retail, the customer that I was servicing was the employee. And even though I'm also an employee, and so in some ways I'm also servicing myself, this is why there needs to be an HR for HR, but I had the employees and then I had the business objectives. And for me, I had to realize, and I always made this part of my ethos that if I'm servicing the people, I never have to think about the business objective because those people are going to deliver on the business objective. If I'm servicing them, if I'm servicing the people and supporting them appropriately, adequately, and up to the standard that I believe is achievable and admirable too, because we always want to elevate people. And so if an HR professional today does not see themselves as that customer service person servicing those people to deliver and drive the business objectives, then they're not actually doing their jobs as far as I'm concerned. And I talk a lot about this on my podcast too, that you have to focus on the people in order to achieve the business objectives. So yes, we have to treat people better. And we have to realize that we have to be better customers as HR people, as managers, as business leaders, we have to also deliver to our customers. And that's a, that's a good way to wrap up to give anyone listening a chance to check out your podcast, bringing the human back to human resources. Yes. Yes. Bringing the human back to human resources bringing it back. And that's good to understand the history. I would like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. I would like to thank all the listeners out there for listening, taking some cues from this discussion. I hope we all can just be better customers, better people to the people around us, and but also understand that sometimes not everything's going to be 100% pleasant. Life is not Disney World, and even Disney World's got hour-long lines, so that's not even a great example. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect analogy for what life is. Sometimes you're just going to have a miserable time waiting in line for the Star Wars ride. Yeah. It's been a while since I've been to Disney World. So I don't even remember which ones are the longest ones. I just assume they all have long lines or something like that. But yeah, I would like to encourage everyone out there to tune into Actions Antidotes again, where we continue to interview people who have followed their passions and have some great insights about how we can create a better world and how you can kind of take some of these insights that we've discussed into your own lives as we are going to do when we discuss things and have our discussions with the people around us and interact with our coworkers. <laughs>